Good morning. Welcome to Sunday morning. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. This is a show that covers health, well-being through connection to people, people in our community, people who beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences. And regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable, we can choose to apply relevant aspects in our community and develop programs that can find a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and mental health. Today's show came about after the Four Corners program on Monday night called Australia's Shame, which exposed systemic abuse within the Dondale Detention Centre in the Northern Territory. What it did was highlight major flaws um, in the systems that are in place to protect young people from abuse and and neglect. It showed um, by the use of CCTV footage and interviews, um, footage of young people being gassed in their cells, uh, being tied up in restraints that are more akin to being seen in Guantanamo Bay, which was bad enough. But these are um, this particular young man was 17 years old. And one being picked up and thrown onto a mattress in his cell, children being tackled by grown men um, and, uh, you know, stripped uh, stripped in what I class and I and I believe the rest of Australia who watched it classed as an incredibly violent way um, when they were um, enacting a, a suicide risk procedure to strip him of his clothes leaving in him uh, traumatized in his room visibly crying rocking uh, and very often they're desperately calling for questions about how long they will be kept in solitary confinement. So this had all actually been covered before in other um, in other reports. Uh, there wasn't... I, I will have to ask my first interviewee, um, Sally Neighbour, whether or not they uncovered new evidence or they put forward new evidence that hadn't actually been part of the original... Um, of, of some of the reports that were in the public domain. But... This seems to have actually done overnight what no one within the Northern Territory who has been campaigning for this to come to light has managed to do, um, particularly since the 2015 report where some of these events happened. Um, So is it the visual impact of seeing the images of actually seeing the you know exactly what was going on via the cctv footage or is it possibly that um, four corners put it together in a way that meant that it was packaged there were interviews there was really irrefutable evidence that this was happening that it is an abuse of the trust that uh, we have as a, as a citizen who is not part of the detention process, I trust that if someone is um, being remanded and uh, put into detention, uh, most often for crimes that they have uh, they have chosen to to do or they've been part of, um, we put them, we entrust them for uh, rehabilitation. We don't we don't entrust them for abuse in that way. There are a number of children identified in the program and some of them are incredibly brave and talk on camera about the abuse they experienced. One boy in particular is actually still in, um, he's in an adult prison now. His name is Dylan Voller. Um, We follow him from 11 years old to 17. He's the boy in the restraint chair um, that has been so freely shared on news sites and social media. It is him that we see uh, sobbing, being stripped, verbally and physically abused. Um, To be honest, I I found it incredibly hard to watch as a human being, seeing another human being treat a human being in that way, let alone a child. Um, I'm, I'm a mother, it was painful to watch. I'm a mandatory reporter, it was hideous to watch on no level could i see that this behavior was justified um so i have no doubt that uh you know they they warranted being in detention however sue oliver a judge um in the youth justice system in the northern territory said she was uncomfortable sending children there so we should and and she was she was concerned so she's concerned 
I reckon we should be. Um, one of the lines that she says in the program which really struck me is that there are kids who do bad things, but that doesn't mean that they're bad people. Uh, now, Dylan Voller was described as having a sharp tongue and being a spitter, and it's very difficult um, when uh, people are abusing you to not react. And that's something we'll go into at the end of the show with Dean, um, Dean Quirk and with Jean Gamble, who are my other two guests later in the program, as we talk about, you know, how do you, how do you um, address that kind of behavior, which clearly um, does that support wasn't given to people within the system in order for them uh, not to react in the way that they did and for that to become normal, beggar's belief. So uh, we'll talk about all of that later. But first of all, let's have some music. Um, and then uh, we're going to talk to the person in charge of the Four Corners program, which is really amazing for Triple H. We're going to talk to the executive producer, Sally Neighbor, about how they managed to, to get the, um, the access that they did and what it was like working on the program. Triple H 100.1 FM, you are listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Um, we're doing a show on young people in detention today and the physical and psychological consequences of that. The inspiration from the show came from a Four Corners program that was on at the beginning of the week called um, Australia's Shame and truly it was. We are lucky enough to have on the show today an interview with Sally Neighbour who is the executive producer of that Four Corners program. Hello Sally. Hi, Lucy. Now, you look after all Four Corners, don't you? The, so every show that goes out. So this is just one of many for you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We put a show out um, every week, 45 minutes of investigative um, television current affairs. Um, and this one was certainly a big one. It was, wasn't it? It, it really has caught the attention. I, I've been... Um, I've been really inspired when you hear that all of that information was out there in the public domain in the Northern Territory and had been on their news, that the way you packaged it together, clearly the interviews that you got, the images that you used, has got response within 24 hours. Um, it's, it's headline news and you've got a Royal Commission out of it. Yeah, you know, the most inspiring thing about doing the story was the incredible outpouring of public emotion and reaction and demand for change. Um, you might remember, you know, Four Corners has done stories on the past, for example, on the slaughter of cattle in Indonesia and on uh, the use of live baiting in the greyhound industry, and those stories caused an enormous reaction. And before this one went to air, um, I remember saying, and I don't mean this to sound cynical because it's not what I was thinking, but, but I said to someone, we're about to find out if people care as much about Indigenous kids as they do about cows and greyhounds. And so it's been immensely gratifying that the response has been incredible and shown that people really do care about you know, the appalling treatment of kids, including Indigenous kids in custody. So the reaction has just been fantastic. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and as you say, how, uh, how sad that we actually don't know whether we care enough about Indigenous kids and we have to question whether or not it will get the same response as animals. But this shows we do actually care, given the right information. Yeah, we do care and we can change things, you know. So that, that's the other really inspiring thing, that when kind of, you know, terrible abuses and injustices are revealed, we can change that. You know, Malcolm Turnbull called a Royal Commission within hours, I think it was yeah. eight hours or less. Um, and there's just been this, you know, lots and lots of moves to change. Um, and so, you know, it's also inspiring to know that actually we can change things. But, you know, I think the crucial thing with this one was that we had those pictures. Yeah. The story had been told before of the appalling treatment of kids in this particular detention centre, Dondale, in Darwin. Um, there'd been at least two inquiries into it. Um, it was known to the Northern Territory Government and they had, they'd done nothing. Well, they'd done a little bit. They'd made some changes, but, but you know, there'd been nothing major done and this was still happening. And what happened was that we got the internal footage from the prison that showed it and that's what people 
reacted to. So it was really a story of, you know, the power of television and the power of images. Um, In that the story had been, you know, written many times, but it was only when we got those pictures out um, that it had that impact. And and also it showed the, the power of social media because the public and community reaction was just instantaneous and enormous. Um, and I think ultimately that's probably what um, caused Turnbull to act so quickly. I think he would have acted anyway, but, but you know, the community and public input through social media just, you know, turned, turned the whole thing viral. Absolutely. It's almost people power uh, really uh, pushing the political will for change. Yeah, that's right, it is. So how, how did the story come to you? What, how, how did that whole process start? Look, it's often the case that um, the story we end up doing isn't the one that we started out doing, and this was one of those. We we started out to do a story on overcrowding in prisons, um, and you know the backstory to that is that you know that the kind of knee-jerk shift to law and order, to tougher sentencing, to refusing bail, has led, among other things, to I don't know, something like a doubling of our prison population. So enormous money is being spent on new prisons. Prisons are overcrowded. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of concerns, obviously, about whether or not, you know, that's the right way to, uh, you know, approach law and order and lots of evidence that it's not. So that was the story we set out to do and we felt that to do that story, we needed to get inside prisons to film. So at least... You know, we got a real sense of what it was like inside some of these prisons. As our team started to make inquiries about getting inside prisons, um, they were the, the first state or territory that agreed to give us access was the Northern Territory, interestingly. But mm-hmm. that was because they've got a new state-of-the-art prison there that they wanted to show off. So um, we we were... Uh, we, we were given access to the Northern Territory prison system, but but we but we there, so then we started doing some research on the Northern Territory, and pretty soon discovered you know that there were some horrific things going on, and we realised that the prison we get wanted to get into was not the one they wanted to show us. <laughs> it was yeah. this youth detention centre, Dondale, and the more we researched that, the more we realised that you know that had to be the story because some of the stuff that was going on there was just. Uh, extraordinary. Yeah, h- horrific once you start peeling back the layers and a, and a lot of lawyers who had been campaigning for change who um, who really were quite in, um, instrumental in getting a lot of this information out, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there are some very powerful legal voices and those kids who come from, you know, really sad, dysfunctional backgrounds and families with, you know, substance abuse and domestic violence and a whole lot of other issues, um, whereby, you know, their families haven't been able, in some cases, to protect them. You know, they've had really powerful legal advocacy um, from some very brave, committed, um, strong legal advocates who've been standing up for their rights for years. Mm. Um, And yet, you know, that wasn't enough. On their own, they couldn't do it. It was only when, you know, these abuses were exposed by the media yeah. that, um, you know, so they've been complaining about this treatment for a long time and, you know, no one was listening very much. So it really took, you know, that exposure on national media uh, to make the difference. I think that's, uh, it's something we're going to talk about a little later in the show, but the psychological effect of the trust, uh, you know, when a, when a lawyer... Um, and an advocate, a very powerful one, advocates on your behalf and still can't get anywhere. The, it erodes the, the trust that something will change. And yet, um, you know, you've got worldwide attention. And yet, um, John Elferink has, he still remains Attorney General, even though he's not now Minister of Corrections. And Adam Giles originally said he didn't see the footage and now has changed his mind. You know, it's, you kind of look and you think, I, we've got, as a people, we have got to keep the impetus going. We've got to keep the conversation going so that they know that it's not something that they can then sweep under the carpet once the media attention moves on to perhaps, you know, next week's Four Corners. Well, that's right. And, you know, it's important to remember that we do live in a democracy and we live in a healthy, functioning democracy. And, you know, we vote these governments in and out 
there's an election in two weeks' time in the Northern Territory, and hopefully, you know, the people will speak up about, you know, what they think about um, these horrors that have been occurring. And, you know, politicians, I know people get very cynical about politicians and the way they behave, but, you know, we vote them in or out. They are susceptible to to public pressure and and community pressure, Um, and, you know, they have to be held to account. Absolutely. And I would say the majority, or, I, you know, I, I, maybe I just live in hope, that have good intentions. They actually do want to bring change about and, and uh, represent. Oh, I agree with you. I think most politicians go into public yeah. life because they want to do the right thing and yeah. they want to make positive change and they want to represent people and they believe in democracy. Yeah. But, but, you know, but, but there are some who are also there to, you know, feather their own nest. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and sometimes they lose sight of, um, you know, of, of what's important. And in the Northern Territory, bear in mind, you know, because there are so many particularly um, Indigenous families and kids that, that are dysfunctional and where, you know, um, things have just gone totally pear-shaped, yeah. um, there's a serious law and order problem in the Northern Territory. And the way they've chosen to address it has been to lock them up, throw away the key, take away their rights, vilify them publicly. Um, And, you know, that's partly been done because there was uh, community demand for that um, in the Northern Territory. You know, people wanted that kind of a crackdown. So, you know, and and when there's that kind of demand for for tough action, then things get out of hand. Yeah. It's interesting. Having looked at and listened to a lot of the stuff this week, there's a the tough action gets confused with aggression and cracking down. Let's put them in their place in a in way of control as opposed to choices and consequences and a discipline of a different nature. You know, inspiring well, change. Right. Exactly. What we've seen in this particular youth detention centre is that there is no rehabilitation, there is no mm. education, there is no. Um, um, treatment programs, you know, kids were being beaten and assaulted and stripped naked and brutalised yeah. and, you know, in the shocking footage we've seen, you know, placed in restraint chairs, hooded and shackled. Yeah. Um, you know, who thinks that that is actually going to make a young person from a troubled background uh, into a better person or cause them, you know, not to resort to crime in the future? It's just absolute madness. You know, we know from all over the world that brutalising people in that way makes them worse. Yeah, absolutely. And adults doing it, people in positions of authority, it, it erodes that trust between the young person and the, and the people who are, who are employed to protect and serve and keep us safe. Do you think that that, in fact, is how you got access to the prisons? Because they didn't actually appreciate that what they were doing, because it had become so normal and um, entrenched in their system, they didn't actually realise what they were doing was wrong? I think that's a part of it. Um, you know, and the Northern Territory government is very gung-ho. Um, and It's, you know, a real cowboy frontier in some ways. The Minister, John Elfrink, um, you know, said to us on the program on camera, I'm the Minister for Corrections, not the Minister for kicking the shit out of people. Yeah, I was... You know, and and yeah. that's the kind of tough talk that passes for political discourse in the Territory. Mm. He also said to us in the interview, these kids come to us pre-broken by choice. That's wow. a direct quote. I was horrified. That yeah. was one of the most terrible things in that program. Yeah. You know, for the Minister for Corrections, who is the guardian and custodian of these kids to characterise them as having been pre-broken by choice. Yeah. Just, you know, beyond words, really. And so, you know, that because that's the nature of, you know, the political discussion there, um, because they think that this kind of, you know, tough approach to law and order is the solution, because they've been getting away with it for so long, and also because... They didn't know we had the footage, mm. the pictures that revealed it. They felt that they could take us into their prison system and show it to us and, you know, persuade us that it was all fine. Wow. Now, 
you're dealing with young people who have clearly been traumatized. Um, they revealed on camera that they're having flashbacks, which is post-traumatic stress, which I see your n program next week is on. So, you know, you yeah. will all have been really well aware of asking uh, young people to remember, recall and retell these horrific memories without re-traumatizing them. How did you handle that? Look, we were very careful um, in how we dealt with um, those young people. Um, they're now aged 16, 17, 18. So some of them are adults now. Um, a couple of them are still juveniles or children. But those ones, we were careful to get written permission from them and written permission from their family guardians to their being interviewed. They were desperately keen to be interviewed. I bet. You know, their stories have never been told, or at least not from their side. Their stories have been told in the Northern Territory press because mm. um, the Northern Territory government on many occasions has released their photographs to the newspaper, which has run headlines like, Dumb Idiots, in you know, massive wow. um, front-page screaming headlines with their pictures plastered all over the papers. So the story about them has been told from the point of view of the government, which has depicted them as, um, you know, just horrendous juvenile delinquents. They've never had a chance to tell their story. No one's ever cared except their lawyers and their families. No one's ever asked them. When we went to them and asked them to tell their stories, they were so keen to tell their stories. So I think that, you know, in this instance, you know, the empowerment and recognition of being able to tell their stories and have people listen has just been enormously gratifying for them. I can imagine. And I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that you did give them a voice because now we have the opportunity to do something about it. And when you see the young 11-year-old crying in his cell you just you just sort of go that's a child that actually needs some understanding and someone to sit down and explain to them you know that there were suicidal um tendencies and he is brutally stripped and you you kind of go it's no wonder he doesn't want to be here you understand that mentality but why would you consider dealing with it in that way so for him to be able to say actually, I want to tell you what, how they've treated me, um, which might give some understanding and explanation to why I'm the person that I am now. And he may have some hope of turning that around with the right support and counselling. I really hope so. Um, that boy, um, Dylan Bowler, um, you will have seen, you know, put out a letter last week yeah. um, through his lawyer after the programme just saying he wanted to thank the Australian public um, for all their support for him and he wanted to apologise for the community for the wrongs he's done in the past. And I so hope that boy is able, with, you know, support, with legal and family support, that he's able to turn his life around because it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I really hope he can and the other boys as well. Oh, thank you so much, Sally. That sounds like a perfect place to say thank you and, and let you go back to your Sunday. I really appreciate you taking the time on the weekend to, to talk with us about it and about the work that you and your team have done um, to really look after the people that don't have a voice. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. After the break, we're going to talk to Jean Gamble, who we've had on the show before, uh, talks an awful lot about hurts and how they affect us and the trauma and how it affects us later in life. And I felt you would be the perfect person to really talk about what Sally had brought up and and how we can support people within our own community who might have been within um, in trouble or have aggressive behaviours, how we can actually keep them out of uh, juvenile justice and that juvenile justice system. Indeed, Triple H 100.1 FM, and you are listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy this morning. Today's show has been focusing on youth detention and the fallout from the Four Corners episode, Australia's Shame. In this next segment, we're going to talk about the emotional consequences of, of uh, trauma. And I've been joined on the line by Jean Gamble. Um, you have been with us so many times and um, my listeners love hearing your insights on Hertz. So welcome back. 
Thank you, Lucy. It's lovely to be back. Now, um, that interview with Sally was um, quite difficult to listen to in parts, wasn't it, when, when she illustrates and obviously the footage that we saw in that Four Corners programme of the incredibly traumatised children as young as 10 and 11 being treated and abused by adults who were um, in positions of power over them. The, the consequences of that on a brain that young must be quite enormous, isn't it, Jean? It certainly is, and it was horrific to view that happening in Australia, first world country. It was really shocking. And uh, what you say about the trauma is absolutely true. Uh, you know, those children who are already in that correctional institution, they've probably already had trauma in their lives, which is why they are acting out and behaving badly if they had been raised, and you can't say this for sure, but generally if you're raised in an environment that nurtures respect and appreciation, you don't actually need to do those bad behaviors which then get you in with a bad lot and you're influenced into worse and worse um, situations. Mm. So those children have already had probably a, a, a degree of trauma, of abuse, neglect, lack of love and appreciation and respect in their lives. So giving them four beefy men four times their size, leaping on them and sticking their knees in their kidneys and putting their head in the water and washing the tear gas off them all just feels horrendous. It's the exact opposite of what we should be doing with these young people. Absolutely. And it, it seems to me that you've got um, adults who can't cope with the what's coming out of the mouths of the young people they seen you know Dylan Voller clearly has they they I've heard lots of um, media report that he had a mouth on him you know well I know lots of teenagers who can be extremely abusive and and uh, they know the weak point they know what adults don't want to hear they know that disrespect is one that is a great trigger but for fully grown men to respond to that trigger by on camera saying we're you know going to teach them a lesson we it just beggars belief that they haven't been trained supported educated to um to deal with that kind of abuse coming from young people exactly and the men were in reaction yeah. to the cheek and the um disrespect given by those young people but, you know, I'm a mother of two daughters, and my teenagers weren't always respectful when they were going through that period of adolescence. And you learn not to react. And maybe some of those guards haven't had the benefit of raising children, but surely, as you say, in their training, you would hope that they had been taught to watch their reaction. Yeah. And, yes, those kids know exactly which buttons to push. But in terms of the trauma, you know, in my practice, I deal quite a lot with people who've been traumatized. And when you've had trauma early in your life or even later on in your life, the most useful thing you can have is a sense of safety. Because the reason why you're doing what you're doing is because you don't feel safe. So as soon as you can bring a sense of safety where you're going to be met, heard, respected and appreciated, by the people around you, your nervous system goes into a calm. Mm. Whereas when you're still frightened, you're in your cell and you're frightened, your nervous system is up and it can almost trigger you into a place of no control. You know, we saw that young man who got out of his cell using the, the broken light yes. and then he started hurling the things at the windows and trying to ram down the door. Yeah. I mean, that, young, that, that child was completely out of control. He yeah. was almost in a state of psychosis where he was so that, that too long in solitary. Yeah. When you really need to be supported and met and held, instead you're left on your own after having been bullied or waiting to be bullied. It's the exact opposite of what a traumatized person is going to need. What we want to do is train our, our guards and our prison systems and the correctional services to bring understanding first for what these kids have been through and then an appreciation for who they are not to crack down and try and control them 
That's the, that's the opposite of what we want. They need to be supported and made to feel safe in order for them first to come to a place of calm where then we can work with their trauma. Mm. And as Sally said, in that institution that we saw on camera, there was no rehab facility. There was no education, no preparation for these children in the world outside. It was simply a place to incarcerate them, control them and keep them from society. Very much taking on the Northern Territories, get them out of sight and, and teach them a lesson sort of philosophy. Yeah, and you know, Sally mentioned that, that the populace had asked for for this to happen because they were a threat to the community and that the public were behind uh, incarcerating them. And it, it, there are some times when it is necessary to take people out of society because they are a risk to others, mm. but not then to further abuse them and and not support them and and uh, and and treat them for trauma. That's right. The first, as I said, make them feel safe, make them feel supported, make them feel it's okay, and then you can begin to work with their their behaviour and bringing the change that you need. You know, I worked with a. An adult man um, a couple of weeks ago who's had a very, very traumatic childhood. And he's, he was in my private practice here in my room. And he said, yeah, well, I've done some pretty bad stuff, Jim. And I've, I've been working with this guy about three months now. And I said to him, oh, yeah, what kind of stuff have you done? And he said, oh, well, when I was homeless in the cross, I was asked to beat someone up, you know, for two grand. And he said, I had no money, so I did it. And then those people asked me if I would break someone's legs for five grand. And I thought, well, I've already got two grand, so I don't need that. That'll last me a long time the way I'm living. But it's nice to know that if I do need more, I can break a few legs and get five grand. Wow. So this man now is a father, and and he's a very loving, who was telling me that with a degree of shame and regret. So he has rehabilitated himself out of that position mm. into someone who's now able to come and see a private practitioner and work on other things mm. like the hurts that he has in relationship and how to be the best father to his son. Mm. That's why he's coming to me. So to say, oh, these kids are beyond, you know, you can't work with them. If they're, if even, even at 20, you can still work with somebody who's been traumatized and exhibiting really shocking behavior provided you know what you're doing and what there's a treatment program in place to help the people. And these are guards, they're not trained therapists. But if the guards are in, it's, this kind of program needs to come from the top down. It does. It's very difficult to implement from the bottom up. So it feels to me like the guards know that they can get away with that kind of treatment because it's kind of endemic in the system. Well, yes, and I think that is borne out. Your theory is borne out by the fact that they knew they were on camera and they didn't actually think there was anything wrong with it. Not just the CTV footage. I mean, clearly, when the guard went into uh, Dylan Voller's room and threw the um, loo roll up to try and hide the CTV footage when he said, I'm going to get you on the outside, he knew that he was doing something wrong. But um, for most of the time... The, the, before they went in when they were gassing the, the children and they said, oh, I hope this is this on camera, I hope that's turned on. They were open to that way of behaving. Then Their version of normal was just set at a place where ours is not or anyone who doesn't have that as their normal is not. And that's, that's the thing, isn't it? We, no one is ever, they're not beyond rehabilitation, but we have to have um, independent people giving having conversations with us about what is normal and what isn't because no one's beyond those boys we hope will come out have seen that the rest of australia has gone absolutely not this is not okay and and access some of the support that could have been given them to a long time ago let's hope so and it's very good that the whistle has been blown here by four corners good on them to see that that's what's going on but as you know, the point we're making is that it's going on because it's allowed to within yeah. the system. Yeah, it and you know, you can home. say, "Oh, I didn't know that was happening," but the whole, the whole correctional services, certainly what was portrayed there, it's deeper than just a few unruly guards who are taking out their frustration on these kids. 
it's, it's a system that is lending itself to that kind of behavior and not to support and safety young people there is no question absolutely now interestingly if we um, if we compare our system when you talk about the rehabilitation and the way of of, of communicating with people who who you know, have done things that have meant that they're now in custody and and in prison um, the Norwegian prison system we can't completely compare because they have a different demographic etc etc but their system is very different to ours in how they approach rehabilitation. Do you know much about that, Jean? Look, I don't know a lot about it, but I do know uh, years ago I was involved in some study of the Israeli army, and um, my background is South African, uh, which is, has quite a big military presence and quite a demographic to manage in terms of the um, the racial hatred between some of the tribes and some of the peoples there. And it was always of interest to me to hear that the Israeli army built their soldiers up to feel they were magnificent and capable of anything. Mm. And generally the South African army's approach was to beat you down so you felt like nothing and then resurrect you in the image that they thought a fighting soldier should be. Wow. And I feel that the Norwegian system, the little I know of it, when you're incarcerated, you're put into a very um, comfortable and uh, quite um, luxury environment. Mm. You're given like a bedroom, a little living room and a bathroom, yep. and it might be a share. And you are treated like somebody who is worthy of respect and appreciation. And then on a cellular level, your body begins to believe that it might be worthy of respect and appreciation. And that gets engendered through the body. And for some of these kids, they have never been treated with safety, respect, and appreciation. Yeah. So we're giving them, on a systemic level, the opportunity to say, oh, that feels nice. I like this. How do I make more of this in my life? Oh, I behave well. How do I do that? Will someone show me? Yeah. Instead of continuing to treat them like wild animals, with lack of respect, lack of appreciation, we were just reinforcing the defenses that they've developed, which have got them into the position they're in. Now, I can give you a quote from the Norwegian system that actually backs up what you're saying there. Um, this, is, this is from an article, um, the Norwegian prison where inmates are treated like people. Uh, on Bastoy Prison Island in Norway, the prisoners, some of whom are murderers and rapists, live in conditions that critics brand cushy and luxurious, yet it has by far the lowest reoffending rate in Europe. Now, um, one of the quotes within it is um, a clinical psychologist by profession, Nilsson, shrugs off any notion that he is running a holiday camp, and I sense his, uh, his frustration. Quote, you don't change people by power, he says. For the victim, the offender is in prison. That is justice. I'm not stupid, I'm a realist. Here I give pr prisoners respect. This way we teach them to respect others, but we are watching them all the time. It is important that when they're released, they're less likely to mit mo commit more crimes, and that is justice for the society. That, yeah, yeah, I really like his thinking there. Yeah. And I would say we don't only teach them to respect others, we teach them to respect themselves. Yes. Because that's what's missing yeah. in these young people, because they haven't come from families where self-respect is engendered. And you can't, I agree, you can't always blame the family. Sometimes the family is loving and respectful and that child still goes off the rails with a crowd that he chooses to run with. Yeah. But generally speaking, if you've raised a child in a respectful and loving and appreciative environment, they're not going to want to run with that crowd. They're going to feel in their body, oh, I don't like that, it doesn't feel good for me. Mm. So in Norway, they're giving them, perhaps for the first time ever, a sense of what it feels like to live in a clean, respectful environment where you look after yourself and you're encouraged and taught how to do that. We all want this innately. When we're in the womb, this is what we hope for. Absolutely. So to give them a marker in their bodies of what that feels like is the first step towards rehab. 
Thank you so much. Your your insight is is very important because, as you say, the marker has to be in the body of what it is to have some self-respect and to have someone respect you. Uh, and then there's a hope that they might they might turn their lives around. Yeah, and it would be wonderful if people in in you know rose up and said this is the wrong way to do it, and we could have the funding to begin a different approach to correctional services and not just for the children, right through the correctional services institutions that we work on teaching people self-respect so that they can respect others. And that has been called for in one of the reports that was done in 2015 that was not action. So, you know, a call again by the the people to say, what's the philosophy of um, confinement? What's the philosophy behind imprisonment? And, and go from there because then all the systems underneath that will actually become um, a whole lot clearer about whether they're for rehabilitation and education or they're actually for power and punishment. Yeah, and it's that thing, shame and vilification are not a, um, a suitable uh, consequence of this behavior. And the people that are implementing those policies, if they are actually implemented, but I think more that those guards are just poorly trained and not educated and they're in reaction to the cheek and insolence of these young people and the young people's cheek and insolence is their only way of defending themselves so they develop a mouth they develop language that provokes in order to keep people away from them that's right yeah so it's really it's not that the guards are beasts and brutal it's just that they're not equipped to deal with the young people who are in their care and that is a matter of policy from the top down that we have a different approach. Thank you very much, Jean. I will, um, we need to go to some community service announcements now, but thank you very much for your insight and your um, interview. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back in a thank short you, while. Lucy. Take care. Lovely Bye-bye. to be on your show. Bye. Bye. After the break, we're going to be talking to Dean Quirk, who is going to uh, talk us through some of the strategies that he's teaching young men in schools um, who have uh, violent tendencies about how to um, manage that feeling within themselves. And also, I'm hoping he's going to give us some tips should we have young people in our lives who have sharp tongues and who know how to press our buttons, how we can make sure that we keep a, a check on our response to those um, th- those challenges as opposed to going into reaction. Welcome back to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Today's show has all been all been about youth detention and actually the consequences of, uh, of detention on young people's mental health. Um, I, I'm joined on the line now by Dean Quirk. Welcome. Thank you, Lucy. Um, you, you've been in the army in the UK, so you've probably been around a lot of the, um, the kind of behaviour that Jean was talking about where there are different philosophies. You either break someone down to build them up or but but discipline is very tough isn't it in that in that training system look it, it certainly is lucy and uh yeah the philosophy was um was yeah to, to to break the the person down or the individual down so that they're easily able to be i guess in a, in a word controlled to be able to follow um the guidance from from their superiors without too much um uh, other interpretations if you like so yeah it's very much in that philosophy my, my background is also working in at Young Offenders Institutes um, for, for six years in the UK as well. So I do have an understanding of uh, the topic you've been talking about today. And really, you couldn't be better placed to give us some tips on how you handled um, the abuse that comes from young people when they're cornered, when they're afraid, when they're insecure, they don't know what's going on, they know they've stuffed up, they've got themselves into this situation where they're in a detention centre and actually they're away from home, they don't know what's going on, they realise there's a pecking order and they need to establish their place in that. How, How do you um, manage that situation? Mm. Oh, well, great, great question, uh, Lucy. So, firstly, just to give a, a just a little bit of, a, of an overview, the, the detention centre or the young offenders institute I worked in housed over about a thousand young inmates, and exactly what you said, you're exactly right. Um, we've got young men from all different areas of, say, uh, the, the greater London area coming into one environment, and this environment is. Uh, the word I would use would be scary. You know, you're talking about 
you know, young people from 15 to 17, that would be one side of the prison, which their class is juveniles. The other side of the prison would house 17-year-olds to 21. So that would be classed as young offenders. So when you come into this environment for the first time, uh, what we found with, with, or what I found with a number of young men is what they do is they put on what we call a mask. So it's a mask of uh, uh, to hide a lot of the, the feelings that are going on underneath, like being scared, afraid, not sure what's going to happen, uncertainty, what are the other inmates going to be like, what are the staff going to be like. All of these questions are coming up inside of these young men. However, on the outside, what they're presenting is tough, um, you know, it's, you know, like what Gene was saying, sometimes we create this, um, this, this personality and we, could, we, we go after, say, the, the staff to try and wind them up and that type of thing, really just to show that we're a tough individual. We can't get broken down. However, the real story is, is that we just got frightened little boys in a very uh, intimidating environment. So do you think that when you watch the footage of what went wrong at Dondale, you can see um, a lack of education for that for those staff or that they actually weren't supported um, from, from must be from a senior position that when they saw one of the officers not handling it very well, they, that, that really a process should have been in place to say, okay, that's not how we do it here. We've got to, we've got to um, provide a safe environment for them and, and reacting in that way isn't the way. Sure. Um, look, um, I can't comment on actually seeing the incidents because I didn't see the uh, Four Corners program. However, on listening to the program today, um, a lot of the incidents for me sounded really over the top, um, uh, you know, atrocious, absolutely atrocious. And yeah, there's definitely, a, I feel, a lack of ed- education and definitely a la- lack of understanding because, you know, yeah. young people per se, you know, no matter what they've done, you know, when a young person goes into detention, they're still, uh, you know, treated like a human being and respected yeah. like a human being. And the types of behaviours that, that I listened to that were that taking place are, yeah, exactly, absolutely atrocious and doesn't help them out. What it does, it just breed, it breeds more trauma. Um, it breeds, you know, a hardened personality that, you know, instead of being re- rehabilitated when they're released, they're, they're going to pose more of a threat to the community because of all of that. Yeah. stuff that's been suppressed again so it's it, it's it, so what i feel is um is yeah the staff need to to be educated or there needs to be outside providers bringing in a program that helps to manage um the aggression and the violence that is obviously breeding in this in this environment you've got the staff that that are dealing with young people that are very violent and aggressive so they don't know what to do with them mm-hmm. you know this is what this is what, this is my understanding of it is like well, how do we handle that? Mm. You know, what do you do? So there's always two sides to a story. So it's, it's really to, to develop some understanding of, okay, this is the young person I've got presenting in front of me. What's his story? You know, yeah. how's he ended up here? You know, what's, what's going on? What's yeah. led to him coming here? What type of upbringing has he had? So this is what I mean by an understanding. And that, I don't think that can happen uh, with the staff. It needs to be an outside agency uh, or some sort of... Um, education program that needs to be bring, brought in. This yeah. is what I feel. And that's what tends to happen in a lot of the uh, the, youth, uh, the UK juvenile and young offenders institutes. We always have a, um, uh, a program which is which is, follows the normal educational curriculum alongside programs that address offending behaviour. It's yeah. really important. If you don't have that, then there's no sort of rehabilitation that's happening. That's right. They're not prepared to go back out into mm. into a normal environment. Now, taking um, taking another look at it, our, our ideal mm. is to look upstream, to say, mm. actually, what we want to do is not filter these young people into the detention centre. You know, the, the yeah. aim of, of youth justice mm. is to try and have as much community-based supervision and ideally not even that, that we go further upstream and try and address the behaviour as early as we can when we see that the, that the aggression and violence is getting out of control. Now, you do that in schools, don't you? So what, what, yeah. how, do you, um, how do you get called in? Um, what sort of programs do you run? And can you give us some tips for the layperson sure. who might be able to apply into their own life? Sure. Well, the programs I'm running are particularly working with these individuals that are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds, have behavioural issues, so the schools have already identified that. So they said, okay, we've got a 
These are our young men that are presented with particular problems. They're not able to be controlled in the classroom. Um, they're having trouble at home. And they're, they're, they're that borderline. They're the, they're the borderline individuals that are at that, that uh, crossroads, if you like, of if they continue with the, the behaviours that, that are presenting, they will end up in, in the types of detention centres. Well, not hopefully, not like Dondale, but they will end up in some sort of lock-up. If mm-hmm. they don't address their behaviours, yeah. so the schools identify these young people. So currently, I'm working in the southwest, and particularly in Fairfield. So I've got the program running in a number of schools, and the program is is all about primary prevention education. It's like okay, so we know what we know uh, the individuals and the types of problems they're having. How can we address that? So we do that in um, in in weekly themes. So we do it over a course of eight weeks, which is our foundational program, and then we go on to a graduation process into a leadership program. So it's all around switching um, switching the behaviours through, getting young people to connect to more uh, a resourceful, more resourceful and meaningful behaviours. So we do that in a, in, a, in a number of sort of key ways. So we start we start in a group where we've got 12, so we work with 10, 12 individuals. And what we do is we start with uh, building the foundations around what Gene was talking about, you know, uh, respect, um, self-belief, getting them to trust. The big thing is for them to be able to trust authority or to trust this particular uh, method or whatever in regards to uh, them being able to open up. And that's the key. Once once we uh, build towards that level, which tends to take about two to three weeks, um, so we do a lot of rapport building, we do a lot of activities to really help to uh, bring the barriers down so that we're then able to connect as a group um i provide myself as a facilitator not a teacher so it means that you know we're, we're all at the same level so it's it's not creating that disconnection between authority and the individual it's about bringing ourselves together so we, we're building community if you like so we start with one of our first strategies is about um identifying the mask so the theme is called removing the mask so we look at what is the mask so what is it the face you show on a daily basis uh, to the environment that you show up in, whether that's school, whether that's at home, um, whether that's um, in your local club, what is it you present? So it might be, for example, one individual might say, oh, I'm confident, I'm happy, um, I'm a tough guy, all of these things. So what we do is, okay, so that's the front of the mask, so what's on the, what's on the rear of the mask, what's really going on? So these young people might say, well, I've got a lot of fear going on. Um, I feel that at school I don't belong, so I'm really scared about that. At home I've got all of these pressures being placed on me, or... Uh, you know, in, in the area I'm working in, or my dad's in prison, so I don't have a role model. Mm-hmm. So I've got all. So this is the real story. I've got a lot of sadness. I just lost my brother to to. Uh, he's just about to do a five year sentence. You know, it's it's really uncovering all of the emotional turmoil uh, or trauma, if you like, to then you know bring it up. And it, there's great power in that. In a young person sharing, you know, his real story, it helps him to connect to others in the group because the others in the group start to feel, well, I'm going through that as well. So then we start to build that, that support network, if you like, and we move on from there. That would be our first theme is about removing the mask, showing them you know, how it presents and showing them the value of showing their vulnerabilities because a lot of these young people have never opened up before. And so, so what you're saying is actually if, if we've got something like that going on in our lives mm. or people that we know or even friends, children who we can see um, reacting and responding and starting to behave in a way that is not going to help them, you know, that you can see they're troubled yeah. and they've got stuff. It's actually about taking time to see below the mask and actually yeah. giving them a safe environment if they if they're able to, to talk about or remove that mask or put them in touch with someone who can help them identify how to cope with the mask off or how to, yes, how to, how to see that they're even putting the mask on in some cases. Correct. And one of the, one of the interesting things is this, is that, you know, these young people, um, particularly the the young people I'm working with that that have experienced a number of this trauma, whether it's violent behavior, abusive behavior, that type of thing. These, these people have a different compliance level to, say, a young person that's brought up in a very good family. Yeah. Do, you, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. So their compliance level is they, this person that's suffered all this trauma is used to um, someone just using their authority against that person. Right. You know, it's like 
or give me your mobile phone or stop messing about or yeah. they're, always, they're used to that. And as soon as they hear that, that tonality or that language, straight away they're on the reactive foot. Yeah. Whereas another way of approaching it would be this. So I'd use an example of a young man. I've been, uh, I've been doing some one-to-one mentoring with a young man that's very, very angry and he's carrying a lot of hurt. Um, one of the stories he shared with me just recently is that he goes to bed sleeping with a knife because he's scared of his uncle that is his guardian at the moment is going to come in and give him the hiding of his life. So that's how he goes to sleep at night, holding a knife. Yeah. So the way I've approached that is is to, um, we do sort of laps of an oval. So there's no real um, eye-to-eye contact. So, it, so it, it reduces that barrier. So it's not a confront, confrontational type of session. It's more like, let's walk along and let's have a conversation. Yeah. So, and I've been doing that for a few weeks now. And what we've been doing is building up a lot of trust. And rather than, you know, rather than sort of trying to telling that this is what you should do or this should, what it is, is it's allowing that young person, because all these young people are very, very resourceful, is allowing him to come up with the answers to, to, to his issues. Yeah. So meaning, meaning this, so we can, we can, so what I'll do is direct the question in so that to find out, you know, what's going on and what do you feel you could do about this? You know, how could you, how could you stop this from happening? And. The interesting thing is this, he will come up with all of the right answers like, you know, I need to tell the school, I need to, to go to the police, I need to do this, you know, so so it's allowing that person through through developing good rapport and, and lots of empathy, mm. really empathize, not feeling sorry for him, just empathizing with his situation. There's a difference with empathy to feeling sorry for someone. It's saying, it's trying to put yourself into that person's shoes and really getting an understanding for what he's going through. And, you know, tears come and all of those things and it's just allowing that sort of stuff to to come up but it's very important that it's not done in that sort of face-to-face uh contact type of way which is how a lot of people uh handle these things with young people it's whether it's the parents sitting opposite them on the table and saying your behavior is doing this to the family generally straight away they're they're feeling that shame and that's bringing up that reactive quality in them yeah you know there's there's another way of doing it Awesome. Dean, look, we're, we're running out of time. I so want to keep this conversation going, but perhaps it will just inspire us to have another another conversation to, to expand on what you've just been saying then. Would you be up for that? I would do, yeah, m- m- most definitely. And I'd just like to, to leave you with, um, you know, at the moment we've just received a, a number of club grants, which is, which is amazing. It means that we can carry on the, the good work that we've been doing um, just, just of late. And we're looking really for a contact that can, help us televise what we're doing because it's like anything uh, anything that's worthwhile needs to be measured and we feel that um, by televising uh, this program and the young men that we're working with can really help um, bring 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 us bring us more awareness and help us to help more young people like what we saw with the four corners documentary how valuable it was to televise what was going on I thought we can do the same with with helping young people with this primary prevention education. That's a very good idea. Make sure you're recording it yourself um, until until you get someone on board. Thank you very much, Dean. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Lucy. We will catch up with you another time. Take Fantastic. Thanks for your time, Lucy, and thanks care. for the great program today. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So you are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and I'm uh, right up against it. You've got Tony Dawson coming up with the Sunday Live team. So I just need to say a few thank yous um, and appreciate what really is, um, has come uh, to light today. Thank you to my guests, Sally Neighbour, Jean Gamble and Dean Quirk. Uh, thank you very much for all of your insights and thank you for listening. The podcast will be available through Stay in the Loop with Lucy um, website and on SoundCloud. And if you want updates, then please like those pages so that you can can uh, get notifications for when they come through. I highly recommend you listen to Jean's show on Hertz, uh, which is also on the site. Next week's show is on dementia. And as I said, I have the wonderful dementia champion, Tim England, in the studio with me. So if you have any questions or you'd like to get involved, then please do so. Um, I will also, uh, in the next, in the upcoming weeks, be doing some stuff for Homelessness Prevention Week, which is what's coming up. So I'll be walking the bridge with my street work team. I will be sleeping out in my car to raise awareness for um, Sleeping Rough and I will also be sleeping in a box for street work in Chatswood. So um, all of those, if you feel to sponsor me or to join me, all of those links will be on the website as well. 
Till then, always remember to be open to question our behavior and our standard of normal uh, because that really is is what's come up for me, that my normal might not be your normal and you might be able to show me something that I'm doing that actually is is abusive or is unkind or is uncaring. Um, Till then, remember to take a moment to look after you. Connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. See you.